0: blog talk radio
1: today on blog talk radio we talk about well we do a recap of the state of the union every year around this time we're going to talk about the administration's complete lack of foreign policy experience we're going to talk about how the 24-hour news stations have gone completely off the wall and we're also going to talk about more departures from congress this is backroom politics
2: live from Shelley's back room 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital Washington DC this is backroom politics to join the discussion you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713 and now the moderator of backroom politics Justin Russell
1: And good afternoon out there. It is Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelly's Backroom, 1331 F Street. Out, we're live. Will you stop talking about his Diet Coke, please? Thank you. You stole it from me. Well, I don't care. Oh. (laughs) So, let me try this again. This is, the best, this is the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics, live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me for this ever, ever impressive roundtable of political insiders, as we do every Tuesday from two blocks from the White House to my left. He is the former eight-term member of Congress, serving Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is Congressman Al Swift. Hi,
2: Al. I'm
1: outing. I know you're <laughs> pouting. To my 11 o'clock, he is the former floor chief, and then Congressman Gerald R. Fortes, the former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is Bob Hines. Hello, Bob.
3: Hello, Justin. Let's keep going. Yep. This is a great show exactly. today. Exactly.
1: <laughs> to, to my 12 o'clock, she is the former general counsel for the Maritime Administration, former House Counsel to Homeland Security Committee. She is the Honorable Denise Krepp. Hello, Denise. Hi, Justin. And to my one o'clock, he is the former executive director of the Democratic Party of the Great State of Maryland. He is longtime Washington Insider, Carl Tubin. Hello, Hello, Carl. Hello, Justin. And to my right is Alan Moore. So <laughs> I, was, I was told that I spend too much time introducing Alan Moore so because you're more qualified. I do the four presidents, so to my right is Alan Moore. So... <laughs> Where are we gonna start? First, we want to start off by saying we've got a, a big show today. Uh, you can join the conversation if you wish. Uh, call us at toll-free, 877-662-3713, again, 877-662-3713. You can also tweet your questions to us by following us at Politic on Twitter. So let's get to the State of the Union address. We all saw it. We all saw the 18 million Republican responses, which we'll talk about. But, you know, instead of going into what we saw, uh, I would like to talk a little bit about some of the takeaways. Uh, Congressman Al, last week you said that the president was going to have to get aggressive. He was going to have to start putting out some sort of legitimate agenda for where he's going to take his next term uh, in 2014 and as we get into midterms. Do you think he did that?
2: I think he did that. on, on, I think it's legitimate to say, a a series of fairly small issues. But uh, it worked for Bill Clinton and it may work for him. Uh, But the major thing he did that we talked about last week that I think he did well on was he really talked about the middle class. He didn't concentrate on the poor. He didn't concentrate on gay marriage. He didn't concentrate on environment and, and these these issues that are not central to the economic well-being of the average American family. He concentrated on that, and that was good.
1: Denise, your take? Did he swing for the fences enough to make Democrats happy?
4: What? He talked about the inequality between men and women, and he talked about the inequality of pay. But from the victims' advocate standpoint, he could not talk about sexual assault in the military, and and that was an issue that a lot of people really wanted him to talk about, because there's going to be a vote in the Senate on Senator Gillibrand's legislation, and more than one person said, "Well, why not? You know, why haven't you come out to say, you know, yay or nay on it?" But there were
1: some Denise, not to take away, because that is an important subject that we've got to deal with here, in Washington and in our military, but some people thought that had he addressed that issue, and then a couple of other issues that they were talking about, that he was gone too deep in the weeds and maybe painted himself in the corner. Did he miss an opportunity in your opinion?
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this is an issue that has been going on for too long. It was an opportunity for him to take the lead on this issue. Senator Gillibrand has the lead. It was an opportunity for the White House to come in and say, you know what, we agree with Senator Gillibrand and more must be done. Carl and you agree? Yeah, I agree.
5: I, you know, he, one thing, he, uh, he didn't slam Republicans. He was very nice to Republicans.
2: He did one sharp thing, and it stood out because it was only one. And that's when he said uh, that, uh, that, that the out-of-work people for not be getting their unemployment because of a vote you made last week. But right. Aside from that, there wasn't any right. pointed
5: he, criticism of the vote. He, he even mentioned Boehner in a very positive light. I think he got, all, he got in the issues he wanted to get immigration, minimum wage, withdrawal from Afghanistan, climate change, retirement savings. But some of it isn't news, when so it was dismissed, but you know, it, those were the core issues. And he has he has acted, uh, as he said today he spoke to a school about this this connect thing right about technology. they're going to, they're going to, go, they're going to have 50,000 schools wired uh, <clears throat> with, high internet. with high speed internet right. And uh, he was very good on that today and and he's got uh, corporations and technology companies.
1: But yeah, I mean, there were, I mean, looking back at it, there were there were several key factors that he talked about. I mean, the, the president did spend a good amount of time on the economy, Bob Hines, but critics from the Republican Party and even some in his own party were saying that, you know, he didn't say a lot of substance as far as what he could do to if our if our economy is in fact. In and past recovery, how to stabilize it? Do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I do. I, you know,
3: I'm not a great fan of the president, as everybody knows. And I, I was very, I was somewhat disappointed in what he didn't deal with. A lot of things I would have liked to have seen him talking about. He, he just, and, and I can
2: understand why he wasn't talking about some of the problems. You wanted a Republican president. Well, of course he did. Well, He's a Republican, yeah. Al. My point. Okay.
0: No, but you,
1: I you had your turn, Congressman. The fact of the matter, the fact of the matter is, you know, things aren't
0: going but very
3: He stole my coat.
1: Right? Okay.
0: <laughs>
3: Continue, Bob. I'm I'm accused of stealing a coat. This is
1: really bottom
0: <laughs> line. You know, we're doing a political
1: radio show here, Bob. If you want to finish your thoughts.
0: <laughs>
3: my thought is that the pres the president. I think he made he made about as good a case as he can make for what's been going on in the world uh, in the, in the domestic domestic as well in policy. He hasn't done a great deal that has worked, but he's 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 still making it look as good as he can and I, and I, I admire his ability to talk. I don't hear sometimes a lot of substance, and that's I think about where I came out. Alan Moore.
2: You know, he did fine. He, he had the lowest uh, audience uh, yet of his presidency for, for this speech, and that's not a big surprise when, when you're this many years into it. Uh, he actually took a few more shots at the Republicans than we've acknowledged around the table. I don't blame him. Don't get me wrong, but he, he, he made a special point. It was a big crowd pleaser for half of the audience when he talked about the 40 votes they would had to, to re- repeal Obamacare. It was a fair shot, but let's not pretend that it didn't happen. He also took some shots about the, the, the lack of uh, action in the Congress and the fact that he was going to start uh, taking initiatives of his own, and I think overstated what he's able to do there. There's a lot of misunderstanding, and some of the Republicans are now having a little trouble with that. When he got to the, trouble, to the point of, of pay inequality, which is a legitimate issue, he grossly mischaracterized and overstated the facts, um, and and uh, uh, nonetheless, and I was a little surprised at that because that's something that the fact checkers go back on. I want to go, go
0: back.
1: I, I do want to go back. One one thing you brought up, Alan Moore, is the fact that when he talked about uh, the inequality, the economic inequality here, uh, there were a lot of. Democrats, key Democrats, that were hoping to point out the fact that, hey, Mr. President, you have got to attack the Republicans for helping create a lot of this through their tax loopholes, through their corporate bargains, and all that. It, it seems that he didn't hear his base, or is that an unfair attack on the
2: president? No, I think what's happened is a bunch of people have said, okay, there's two issues here. So there's income inequality, which we were leading up to the to the speech, and last week we talked about how he, he was playing up this notion of income inequality, not defining it, and there are a bunch of different ways to define it, and then ha- having as his answer uh, an increase in the minimum wage and the extension of unemployment benefits, and a lot of of, of Democrat economists and others were calling him out as in, that's not the answer to what we're talking about. It's what we said last week, and it's what prompted Al to say, I hope he focuses more on the middle class than this whole inequality issue, and I think they did that, and they got that message. There's that, the, the other issue that, that I was referring to, though, is, is, his, is his, mis, his fundamental mischaracterization of differences in pay between men and women, which, as I say, it's a legitimate issue, but he mischaracterized it, and left himself open to, to people. Don't I mean, him. What I, the, the one thing he didn't do, which most disappointed me, because he, mostly he was reprising things from the past. One thing he did not reprise, though, is the long-term threat that, that deficit spending and the size of our overall debt uh, uh, creates for us. He didn't talk about it. He has in the past. He left it out this time.
1: Is that because of the fact that he realizes there are several key bills, including one that just passed the Senate today, the Farm Bill, which is a five-year bill. He's got a lot of expensive paper floating around
2: Congress right now. No, Do you think he backed off of that? No, I think that he doesn't have a lot to say. And what, one of the things he did have to say in the past, which was a, a slight modification in the way we index or increase benefits annually to take uh, care of inflation, uh, he, he courageously he supported it in his budget, and he has now less courageously dropped it, ignored it, and made no reference to it. Denise crap! you were shaking your head as, Carl, as, uh, as Alan was speaking here real quick. I mean, when we talk
1: about the inequality and we talk about women inequality, one of the people that Mrs. Obama had up in the gallery with her is the new CEO of Ford, who is today the most highly paid executive in the car industry, bar none it's hard to make a case of saying women aren't paid equally when you point up at the gallery and saying, Hey, I got the CEO of Ford. Who's a female? First, wow. first of all, Justin, first of all, is General Motors, General Motors. I'm sorry. General Motors. <laughs> I apologize. General Motors. <laughs> but, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. General Motors.
4: Do you, I mean, because how many other women are there in senior executive positions in the car industry?
2: Well, you got the head of General Motors, the but largest car manufacturer
4: in the country,
1: I'm saying and
2: comparing Angelina and Ange- comparing Angelina Jolie and some person in a local theater group.
4: I mean, come on! But I guess the question I have for Alan is, when you said he mischaracterized, yep. what what do you mean mischaracterized? That, that, that to me was an interesting statement. So he
2: he he took an old figure which says that across the country, men women make 77 percent of what men make. That is an apples and oranges comparison. That's taking every man who works, every woman who works, regardless of how much they work, what their job is, how much preparation, how many years of work, how much education, and just compares them. That is a dishonest characterization. What matters is when people have the same experience, the same education, and it's a man versus a woman, what's the difference? That is a real difference. But it's in the neighborhood of five to six percent, and it's well, so it's where less. Where
4: are getting your numbers? I mean, and when you say five to six percent, those
2: like, those numbers even even the main advocates acknowledge that that that, that, that the, the the biggest advocates, so Lily Ledbetter, in an article this week, said the difference is about seven percent. A, a lot of economic studies have said it's closer to five percent. It's a real difference. It's less for younger people than for older people. That's That is something, I mean, it's against the law, the Lilly Ledbetter so-called Act, Fair Pay Act, Equal Pay Act, is the law of the land. This this has been changing, but when he talks about 77% and then says we need equal work, equal pay for equal work, that is a mischaracterization, a misrepresentation of the facts. Denise, he uses
4: one fact to make another point. Denise, crap. But what I'm hearing out of it, regardless, is that men and women are still not being paid the same for the same amount of work. If, if it's 77% or 5%, we're still not at equal status.
2: And as I said, it's a, it's a legitimate issue, but it is not legitimate to totally mischaracterize it.
4: Then how do we go about making sure that we do have equal pay for you know equal work? I, I, think, I think that the point that Alan's getting at is that although at
1: one point in our history that was not the case, we are getting to a point now where we're seeing that gap close quicker than we've ever seen in our economic history. It's
4: closing. But, Justin, just a few minutes ago you, you pointed out that I should be very happy that we had a, you know, one person at General Motors. I mean, the, the problem we're having right now is that you have a large population of women that are entering the workforce. They're getting into their mid-careers. And then they're leaving for a variety of reasons. This is happening not only within the civilian sector, but within the government sector, both civilian and military. And until we can keep women in, as, you know, it is a different degrees of, of, of different interests. Until we can keep them in into the senior corps, they're not going to be there. And the government and the civilian sector need to work together to figure out how to keep women in because they're not doing it right now. But,
1: but, 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 let, me, let me ask you this question. Why? Give me an example of why women are leaving. Is it because of family issues? Is it because of lack of either education or opportunity?
4: Well, in some cases, there are glass ceilings. I left the Coast Guard in 2002 because at that point in time, there were no female admirals. In addition. It was very clear to me that I was never going to make admiral because i would never gone out to sea, and I wasn't in the academy. And so for me, but I'm that's just academy. one experience. You right. also were the general counsel. You were also one of the top
1: three officials at an organization and appointed by the president as a female to a largely male-dominated industry such right. as the maritime industry. And that
4: was an anomaly. I mean, when I testified last week, somebody came up to me and said well hey you know the navy and the uh, the army now have jagged uh female chief counsels and my response was yes and i got there faster than they did and i was also younger because i was a political appointee we still do not have a senior military corps that is 50-50 male and female. So you don't see that in the military. You're not seeing it in the uh, senior echelon, in the career senior echelon of the government, and you're not seeing see, Denise, it. I would, I would disagree with you. I would absolutely disagree with you on the one
1: fact that you're saying one, it's not 50-50. The military's not 50-50. So That's the reality. When you
4: start looking at the incoming you know, when the enlisted and the junior officers, it's more Honestly, reflects the American population. By the time you get to 06, 07, and 08, it does not reflect the American population. Well, you population. came
1: from a service. You came well, from you a service. Oh, wait, 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 Hold on. Let me jump. just jump on this because she's using the coast Guard. You've had. You've had two. You had two. Several. Cards. What? Did you bring cards? <laughs> uh, you know. You know. So this is great radio. You came from a service where Vivian Cray... Dream on. Vivian Cray was the vice commandant. Okay. She came up through the ranks in in aviation. She didn't have a glass ceiling. I don't think that's fair to people like Vivian. Really? Did
4: she become commandant?
1: She didn't want to be commandant.
4: Yeah.
0: We're
1: way in the weeds here. Yeah, we know. are in the weeds. Let's go back. Let's go, back. Let's go Let's back. Let's go back. Bob Hines, you know, when we <laughs> see this is what happens. You bring up Coast Guard and I just go into the weeds. Bob Hines, uh, when we look at, when we look at uh, one of the things that, that the president did bring up, uh, he did bring up his, his, his ability or his willingness to use executive action uh, under, under the Constitution, or under U.S. Code, to enable and implement some of the agenda that he feels is not getting done. He brought up the concept of raising the federal contractor minimum wage to $10.10. Is, is that a shot across the bow, not to get back to maritime issues, is that a shot across the bow to Congress saying, look, You're either with
3: me or you're against me. Pick one. He said several things with respect to I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that in executive orders. There's very little that he can actually do. Uh, And I'm not an expert in it. I know Alan probably has a much better feel having served in the White House himself more than I never have. But the reality is there isn't that much that he can do that is really major and substantive. He can do a lot of things that, uh, you know, touch here and move there and, and sounds good. But substantively, you have got to legislate. He, he can't do a whole lot of things by himself. Al, did he
1: come across as somebody that just didn't get how Washington works and was willing to take his
2: football and go home? No, I don't think so at all. <clears throat> I think what he did was to uh, – it, it was the it was the first – big strike in the next election. Uh, He basically set out a lot of things that are admittedly small, Uh, but they're things that he may well achieve. Uh, And if the Republicans don't get it together and get some things done, he's putting himself in a position to draw a sharp contrast with them in that regard you can then sit and argue about whether his things are as important as the things we didn't do, but, uh, that's not, that's not going to work. So I think he's putting himself in a, in a very good position. And the only way the Republicans can really rebut this, uh, is to do some things. Carl Tooven. I think,
5: I think when you look at the speech, all on the whole, I think it was a safe speech, uh, and outlining things, outlining distinctions, and also things that are probably going to be used in the 2014 campaign. And and he left out a lot of things that he usually throws in, because he didn't want to raise too many hackles and too many controversies.
1: And by the way, you can call us if you have any comments or questions for the roundtable. You can call us toll free 877-662-3713. Again. to join the discussion. Our switchboards are open. Uh, Alan Moore, the idea of the president coming up and saying, look, executive action is going to be a key way. We're going to implement these programs. These are programs that are essential for America becoming stronger and the State of the Union becoming healthier. It just did not give, in the eyes of many Republicans, a tone of, compromise, working together, coming in a a, uh, true Washington political dynasty?
2: First of all, it's a a huge exaggeration, as we've said before, to to suggest you can do an enormous number of things. If you look back at the history of executive executive orders, about half of them are the creation of different advisory panels and boards. You can do it through an executive order, or you can just say, all right, we want an interagency committee, and you just do it. But it looks like you're doing something when you, when you, do, uh, you, you do it through an executive order. The, 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 one, the, the one exception historically to that was, was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who used, to, who used to do these things about 10 times at the rate of re- more recent presidents, who do them at the rate of 30 to 40 per year. Now, Obama's been a, a little bit at the lower end of that, other recent presidents at the higher end. There's just not that much stuff. If you think about his his big order on on federal contracts taking the minimum wage up to ten dollars and ten cents an hour um, let, let let's think about what he's actually saying. he hasn't issued this order yet they got to they got to write it they've got to figure out let's see we don't want to get crossways with the law. we can't break budgets. Oh, it has to be prospective, so it's got to be future contracts. How many people are we actually talking about considerably less than ten percent of federal workers so it, it is very small ball. Now, he's trying to make this argument of taking the minimum, the federal minimum wage. Twenty-one states have increased their own minimum wage above the federal because it makes sense in their states. Rich states, um, it makes a lot more sense to pay more money than in the really poor states. But we have this federal floor, this federal minimum. And in some states, uh, nationwide, 2 to 3% of the people work for minimum wage. Now, there's maybe 7 or 8% who work for less than $10 and 10 cents an hour, but in some states that's considerably higher. So, we 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 have this myth. Let's give everybody a pay raise. Yeah, great. Fine. How about $15 an hour? Let's give them a pay raise and pretend there's no negative side effect <coughs> to that, that there's no job loss, that that, 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 the, that the very person who might get a pay raise has to pay them more for daycare, restaurants, food. On top of the fact,
1: though, he's talking about government contracting. And by the way, there is already legislation, Davis-Bacon Act. You have to pay sustainable living wages in order to get those contracts. That's federal mandate. To me, that executive order seems like a red herring. Congressman
2: Al. First of all, that isn't what Davis-Bacon is all about. Is that um, not part I, of the- it? I hate to, become the, to take the fact checker. <laughs> title away from Alan I love having somebody else drop a fact in every now and then you're welcome you're yeah. welcome to join they have to, they have to uh, The prevailing local wage is what they have to do yeah. uh, what I wanted to say was that I think everything that, that Alan said is cogent and uh, accurate and in a college class he would win hands down Take that explanation out onto the stump where the president can say, we increased the minimum wage, and you say, but but not for these people, but for those people. Yeah, for those people. Those people will be better off. What did you do? He can say to the Republicans. So I, I think that you're right in much of what you say if you could get an audience of college professors- that you were trying to persuade. Uh, you're not. You're dealing with the American people who, uh, who, who really get lost in the weeds, and uh, an awful lot of what you were talking about were weeds. Well,
1: we're going to take a break here real quick. When we come back, we'll continue this discussion, because we haven't talked about the takeaways yet. Uh, this is Backroom Politics Alive. From Shelley's back room, 1331 Ave Street in the heart of our nation's capital. Again, you can call us toll-free, 877-662-3713. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Wow, a little bit of fat Waller. Lulu back in town. And I, I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town or, heck, when we're living here in town... We usually find ourselves down at Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Right across from the National Press Club, why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu. The most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the... Opus X Lost City They have a cigar for everybody Mild, medium, strong, heavy However you want to smoke it It's available here at Shelly's Back Room Come in, have Bob, Nah Or any one of the girls Show you what the right cigar might be For your taste that evening Again, Shelly's Back Room 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it It is definitely the place to be you can tell the mailman not to call, I ain't coming home until the fall, and again I might not get back home at all,
0: Lula's back in town, yeah. The fall. and then again I might not get home at all Sooner back in Oh, that woman's back in town. Oh, my, 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 my. Hey,
1: we're back here live at Shelly's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., for the best political talk show you've never heard of, This Is Backroom Politics. Uh, you can call us toll-free, 877-662-3713 to join the discussion, or you can tweet us at Backroom politic through Twitter, and you can ask your questions through the social media. Hey, uh, we're going to continue our, our, our talk about uh, some of the pros and cons of the State of the Union. We were just talking about the minimum wage issue. Uh, off the air, we were talking about it, and, and I want to bring this up. You know, it, it seems to me that there is a federal minimum wage. We've discussed that. Everybody knows about that. That if the president felt that this was such a huge issue for him politically— that he himself would push legislation through Congress to raise the federal minimum wage to let's call it $10 and 10 cents an hour. Bob Hines, instead of saying, I want Congress to do this, I will work with Congress to do this. He put the onus back on the States. Why, why not take the reins of the horse and go full bore?
3: Well, I you know, have to ask him because I don't know. My guess is it was, you know, it's, a lot of
2: stuff. the stuff. The question is a false premise. Yeah.
3: Why, yeah. why is it a false premise? He,
2: he wants to increase <laughs> yeah. the federal minimum wage to $10.10. So that's $10. So 10 so his proposal. There. He commended the states for taking the initiative. He's not backed away no. from his desire to what? go to 10.10. He's saying, way to go states. We need to do it across the board for the federal government. He's picked a pretty big number given our current in, in terms of where we are currently, we only took the minimum wage from five dollars $5 and, and, and 15, fifteen cents to seven and a quarter in 2007, just before the just before the crash. Now again, he wants. Now he was all in to take it from. We, we got all this this un, unemployment problem and so on. Let's just kick it up again,
5: maybe maybe bigger. Well, hold Bob, hold I on, hold on. I want, on I want to get Bob's take on
1: this. I want to get Bob's take on this. You know, if you're if you're pushing it, push the legislation. Don't don't say, hey, I commend you guys. Push legislation. It did not sound like, at least to me, that there was any push coming out of the White House to
2: say, show me the bill. I agree with you. There's legislation yeah. in both yeah. houses of Congress to do this. Yeah. Tom it's, Harkin, it's there George now, Miller, the, the long, their, their bill. the
3: bills are sitting up there, we'll see what happens. I
2: guess nothing will happen. Congressman, Congressman Al. And, and I guess nothing will happen, and I... I, I it amazes me as to why that's so. How could we, after watching the last five years of legislative activity on the Hill, why, why is it that that wouldn't work? Is it, is it possible that the Republicans might oppose such an action as that? Of course it is. And he, he's not dumb enough to go up there and say, well, now I'm going to try and push this through when he can't get anything else through the Republican Congress. But he is saying he wants to get this through. That's what he embraced. He endorses. He of, course he, of course, he's, he's, he's for all for it. it. But he's got the ability um, at, through executive action to take this, this little side, some largely symbolic but not totally action, regarding federal contractors. He's trying to do both. And commend the states as well. He wants, I don't know, quarrel with the politics of what he's trying to do. Bob Hines
3: trying to set a national uh, pay structure per hour is 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 something that is very difficult to to make sense of. In this way, let's take for example: if you are a small rural state. The cost of living is probably 25 or 35 or 45% lower than it is in California or New York or Texas or Florida or someplace else. I think the smartest thing to do is you've just got to realize that if you're trying to make it equitable, you've got to deal with it in the economics of the local communities rather than trying to say, here's a national number. Because the national number is not going to be a number that works Every place.
2: So, therefore, you support Davis-Bacon. Sure. Of course.
3: Why not? No. Yeah. Why
2: well, not? Well, it's, it's news to the Republican leadership. I'll
1: but no, no, no. Davis-Bacon, going back to your correction, Davis-Bacon, where well, you want to call it a prevailing liv- livable wage in that area or calling it, you know, the prevailing wage. prevailing wage in that in that state or that region, whatever you want to call it, it's still federal law. That's That's the requirement. I can tell you right now that as a former federal contractor, that if I bid a job, I wasn't paying $10.10 an hour to just your entry-level job. We were at some points paying, depending on where we were, 12 14 $18 an hour, because that was the prevailing wage at the time, and we had to do that in accordance with Davis-Bacon. Why wouldn't we? That's the law right now.
2: Davis-Bacon is something that the Republicans opposed. They would repeal it in an instant if they could, uh, and it really interferes enormously with establishing new programs because inevitably organized labor will insist that Davis-Bacon apply and the Republicans will vote it down. Uh, I ran a, a bill to completely redo the uh, uh the, what what was the name of the law to, to clean up uh, clean up superfund superfund yeah okay the superfund bill got it out of the committee 42 zip <clears throat> and if it had come to the floor organized labor oh so by the way we're going to add davis bacon now i had I had all of the Republicans on the Energy and Commerce Committee supporting the bill. How many would I have had if Davis-Bacon had applied? I doubt if I would have had any. Yeah. Same
4: thing happened with the 9-11 Act when we were negotiating, uh, talking about it. Uh, there were certain members that wanted to put uh, a direct reference to Davis-Bacon in the piece of legislation, and the amount of pushback was just enormous.
2: Yeah, it, it crazy. It's, it's just an article of faith among Republicans that that's a bad thing. Alan Moore. Well, yeah. Let's not conflate Davis Bacon with a minimum wage. Minimum wage is the legal minimum you have to pay for most work in a particular jurisdiction. If there's a federal minimum wage, it applies nationally. There are exemptions for people who who work in, in jobs where they can get tips and so on, but. By and large, it is a, a, it is a floor under which you, you can't go. States have the right to set a higher minimum wage than the federal government does. Twenty-one states have done that. Davis Bacon says it's got nothing to do with minimum wage. It says in order to be a federal contractor, you have to pay a prevailing wage, regardless of what the, what the local situation is in terms of employment normal salary, et cetera, and that's a different issue, a different problem. One can argue the merits of it, but it's not the same as minimum wage. I would would agree with you only partially
1: because the fact still remains is when the president uses the federal contractor minimum wage of $10.10 an hour, to me, that is a red herring. That is, you go to a place like Michigan where there is high unemployment, but the Davis-Bacon wages that people are paying federal contractors at the lowest level are upwards of 12 or $14 an hour. So, either you know, you can't have it both ways, in my opinion. I think he's looking for just a, a populist way to show more economic inequality in a country where if people truly want to work and make high-level pay, they can get that
2: job. I just don't see it. Am, am I being naive, Alan? I f I don't mean to be rude, I'm no, not go sure ahead. what you just said, and I was trying to listen.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what I'm saying is, Davis Bay if you're gonna use federal contractor minimum wage
2: as a baseline, you can't use that as you can't use that as a baseline. It's not no, no. accurate. He's he's saying that that he has the power, quite limited, prospectively, to say any federal contractor has to pay at least $10.10. In many states, that's an irrelevancy. In some places, it's quite relevant. In total, less than 10% of federal workers would even be affected by such a thing. And that could be zero in some states and a higher percentage in other states. Call to it.
5: The other thing is, is is that this this only applies to new government contractors. Yeah. It, only new ones. Perspective, not former. Right. Well,
1: I mean, economic inequality is something that we're going to be dealing with, obviously. That's going to be the new hotbed for 2014, I think. But outside of that, one of the big areas he also pushed was education. Uh, he pushed education as a way to get people more jobs. He talked about creating new uh, educational-based job creation technology hubs on top of the ones that he's already created. Uh he talks about uh, sustainable pre-K programs. Was, was, he, he tried to make education a focal point, but, again, a lot of critics in his own party said there was, of, there was a lot of talk there, but not a lot of meat. Denise Krupp, do you think that he hit it?
4: Because he went in saying that education was going to be a key point. Education is a key point, but right now he's struggling with what's called the common core there's a big pushback, there's a big pushback in uh, New York, there's a big pushback in D.C., and there's a lot of big pushback in other places because people are very concerned about what it is, what the mandate is, and how it impacts students. And I, I can tell you, personally, as a mother of two children here in D.C., we've had some very interesting problems related to Common Core, and, and that's gonna have to be something he overcomes, I think, before he reaches any other programs.
1: But this is also an administration, Congressman Al, that he's not truly funded or gotten through the idea of No Child Left Behind, which some would say is probably one of the more popular, more successful programs coming out of education. Oh,
4: can I say can I, can I Go. Go.
0: No.
4: <laughs> that program is awful. Well, not, I mean, why? Oh, wow. Well, first of all, if you are an English as a Second Language teacher... Uh, no Child Left Behind sets all of these standards that children who do not speak English cannot meet, and not only can they not meet, but their teachers cannot meet, and it's setting up expectations that are being that people can't actually meet. So that's on the English is, you know, second language. Then you start talking about schools that don't receive all the funding that they need, and if they don't receive the funding and you're not giving the proper education, if you still have this mandate from the federal government, You're creating chaos.
1: So no. But you're talking. But you're also talking about a program where we've seen a lot of successful charter schools. You know, nobody mentions the charter school programs. Nobody talks about the success that we've had in that. We've had
4: successes here in D.C.
1: And by the way, you have several states that are requesting waivers from No Child Left Behind because they don't want
4: to fund and my the charter school with charters system. And my even though I really like them, did you know what the D.C. Chancellor told us as parents? My daughter, by the way, is heading into fifth grade and we probably will have to send her to a charter because the D.C. Chancellor said our middle schools are lousy, so go outsource your children to a D.C. charter and then bring them back in to public high school. Well, I can tell you as a parent, I'm not doing that because if I get her into a charter that goes from fifth to twelfth grade, you're not getting my kid again because I don't trust you. So don't go there with me on those charters. But wait a minute. No, wait, 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 wait. Their responsibilities. But but again, you know, when you talk about when you talk about educational
1: programs, Bob Hines, would you not agree? Charter school programs and school vouchers have been very
3: successful. They've been very successful and in city after city, particularly the larger cities, is the difference between the quality of the education in the charter and the public schools
2: is significant. Isn't there an interplay there with the would the quality of the public schools in this in this intermediate range be as bad if they weren't siphoning stuff off into charter schools and, uh, and et cetera? Oh wow, no. Alan Moore, do you want to take that one? Well, yeah. That, first of all, you started with the question of what the president talked about. The president talked about universal pre-kindergarten, mm-hmm. and he talked about making college more affordable. He pretty much left out the stuff in between fair enough now george bush and ted kennedy worked out the no child left behind bill back in 2002 and, John Boehner. and others yeah, absolutely right. and they and they and they kind of acknowledged in a very public national way that that we had a system where there were Congressman of,
1: Al is so proud. He a, mentioned Boehner. A lot of
2: poor schools, a lot of poor kids who were just falling farther and farther behind, and there was just something fundamentally wrong with that. President Bush felt that way. Ted Kennedy, John Boehner, and plenty of others felt that way. Now, in the implementation, as Denise points out, it was a it was a mess, and it and it, people were teaching to the test, and it was it very mixed results. Meanwhile, charter schools are coming on board voucher experiments here and there, um, and now we, we're, this, this, this common core idea, in my mind, is sort of No Child Left Behind 2.0. It, had, it was sort of built on the framework, and it's modified and changed and significantly different, and of course they didn't want to say, we're, we're improving No Child Left Behind, this is the new administration, this is, this is their idea. It's got its own challenges, some of which are the same, it, it, but it, it's being embraced by a lot of the states. Now, charters, with regard to charter schools, there are good ones and there are not so good ones. And yes, it drains kids and it drains money. But but parents were demanding and insisting that the that, that they have some options and that the and that the system improved or they were going to move. So it it's you're sort of damned if you do and damned if you don't. All charter schools are not doing a great job. There are charter schools that have that have, that have where people have embezzled money and they have been. Been a, you know some bad actor charter schools, and there've been some terrific ones. There's a program called KIPP. It's a national program. They and they're here in D.C. and elsewhere. They've had a stellar record by comparison. Um, as has the Harlem School in New York City. I mean, as, but kid, KIP is like a, a, I think it's the largest national right. program. Um, it There's no easy way here when you've got kids from divided families who who have no place to study, who are cold, who are scared, where there's crime all around, there's no books in the house, um, it's pretty hard to say to the school, fix that. Fix what these kids show up with. If And if you don't, we're going to pound the heck out of you and, 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 and punish and penalize you. Call Tooven
5: You know, the president brings up this point uh, about kindergartens and, and preschool and all that. And it's very important because um, you know, he, he's trying to take the lead he's trying to, to, to teach us that we have to pay attention to the young children and we have to get them before uh, they have to start preschool. some of us thought about it before I know but the more it said Alan the more it said the, 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 the possibility becomes greater and and you know the governor, some of the governors have, have put this in their budgets and hopefully more governors will put this in their budgets.
4: Denny's well, crap. DC has a fantastic program. I mean, my daughters were the beneficiaries of going to school. I mean, my daughters have been in school since they were three, and they wanted to go to school. So I'm a strong proponent of pre-K because I think it teaches kids how to interact with one another. I think it gives children the opportunity at an earlier age to learn. So I'm a strong proponent of it, especially when you look at what was going on in Virginia where my sister did not have that opportunity. We're 20 miles away from one another. And, you know, my nieces and nephews ended up having to go to an aftercare program and a pre-K program. And I mean, it it, it was a paid program. So pre-K can work, but it only works if you look at the entire system. You can't just look at pre-K and think you're done you got to look at pre kid and you got to look at the elementary, then you need to look at the middle school, then you need to do the high school. And it has to all work together. And that, quite frankly, is not happening in a lot of places, and it's certainly not happening here in Washington, D.C. That, All that being in consideration, Congressman, now, when,
1: when you look back at the State of the Union that the president gave, on, we're going to talk about the foreign and international issues here at the top of the hour, but... In, in, in the domestic issues, did he miss anything that he had an opportunity to really strike on, in your opinion?
2: No. You mean, by strike on, <clears throat> you mean that he could get past Congress? Uh, not unless Congress changes uh, remarkably from what it's been in the last five years. No, I don't think he did. Bob Hines, I agree with that. Denise Krupp? I agree with that. Really? Wow. This Carl Tuven I agree. Alan Moore? His job isn't to just talk about the things that he might be able to do with through executive order. His job is to lay out his own priorities. And if the Congress doesn't go along, fine, he's got to challenge them. And he did some of that. As I mentioned before, I was disappointed that he didn't say more about the long-term restructuring taking on the entitlements. Not because he can, not because it's going to be easy or possible in the next year, but because that's his job, to lay it to to remind everybody and and and, and I, I thought on, on foreign policy he was he was uh, uh, a little shy too but you know he still went for over an hour there are limits to what all you can do Wow
1: okay we're gonna take a quick break uh, when we come back uh, we will have uh, Dakota wood on the air joining us and we're going to talk about some of the international affairs but we're also going to focus on Syria Uh, For those who don't know, Syria has become an even greater mess. Talks have stalled in Geneva, trying to get some sort of solution to this. But but before we get there, uh, Alan Moore, you've been following the Syria question for a while and kind of in depth. Uh, Did the president say anything in the State of the Union address that actually gave you some sort of hope that Syria might be a key international
2: target for our foreign policy? Well, not, it wasn't what he said there. He didn't say much. Um, he didn't say much about. Should he have? I I think it was. A, I think as I've said before that that we have missed the boat in 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 being an advocate for the whole, for for the need for the rest of the world to do more for the for the grotesque horrors that are ongoing in Syria. Syria is. President Obama's Rwanda, people maybe not even remember what that means, but, but asked Bill Clinton about Rwanda, where we, we stood off to the side and watched, in that case, millions die. In the case of Syria, well over 100,000 have died, up to 9 million people, uh, about a third of the population of the whole country has been displaced. It's wintertime. People don't have food. They don't have clothing. They don't have places of warmth, and they're not safe. And they're dying. And, and, and U.S. policy is, gee, Assad's got to go. Gee, chemical weapons are a red line. We went all in to try to get some kind of negotiation on the chemical weapons. We haven't begun to move stuff away. Yeah, we're going to talk about that with and Dakota. So, so, you know, it, 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 I, I, believe me, I'm very sympathetic to the challenges because nobody in America cares that much Um, But that's why, again, why a president has to lead and and explain why we care. Having said that, it's it's very hard to figure out what you do. Congressman, hold, hold that thought. We're going to go to
1: break. When we come back, we're going to bring this subject up. We're going to have Dakota Wood from the Heritage Foundation joining us and talk about this and other foreign policy issues that are jumping out in front of us. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. You can call us at toll-free, 877-662-3713, or you can tweet your questions at Backroom Politics on Twitter. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor, hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelly's Back Room that really know how to pour a drink, whether it's something simple like my on-air, Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection, that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches, they've got Isla sky scotches, blended single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays. more time We're back here live in Shelley's back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Uh, this is the best political talk show you've never heard of. Joining me, as they always do, is Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Denise Krebs, Carl Toobin's out roaming the hall somewhere, Alan Moore. Uh, we were talking earlier about the State of the Union. We're going to talk a little bit and switch gears, talk about some of the foreign affairs issues, particularly Syria, which has really gotten a lot of attention over the past 48 hours. Joining us right now, he is a uh, former candidate for the 2nd Congressional District of Oklahoma. He is the former Special Advisor for Special Operations Command U.S. Marine Corps and now a Senior Fellow at Heritage Institute or Heritage Foundation. He is Lieutenant Colonel Dakota Wood. Hey, Dakota, how are you doing?
6: Hey, it's real good to talk to you. Thanks Welcome for having back. me. Welcome
1: back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Hey, uh, Dakota, we were talking a little bit. Uh, as we went to break about the situation in Syria. Uh, you obviously have been doing a lot of looking into a lot of research and a lot of writing on this issue in particular. In your opinion, give us the current state of what reality is in Syria as we talk. Well, I, I don't
6: think you could find a more uh, convoluted and complex Uh, situation and and probably the the global map. Um, You know, the uh, alliances are ever-shifting. You've got a a great number of uh, various actors uh, who are um, aligned one way one day, and then shift alliances the next day. So there are kind of simplistic overviews where it's, you know, Sunni versus Shia versus, you know, Alawite or what have you. It's, you know, proxies uh, acting on behalf of Iran or the United States or uh, Saudi Arabia or Russia or what have you. But, but those really gloss over the complex web of relationships that are in that country and I think right now, the easiest uh, way to describe it is it's just a free fire zone. Uh, everybody is looking to try, uh, try to carve out uh, their niche within this very chaotic environment, and they will do whatever they need to do on a day-by-day basis to advance their interests. So whether that's aligning with you know a neighbor nearby, uh, if that helps in one battle, uh, but always uh, with their eye on the long-term objective of having their group. Be a dominant player in whatever Syria turns out to be six months or a year from now.
5: Uh, Dakota,
1: when, when we when we look at Syria, let's look at at, at the political instability right now. For some mm-hmm. reason, the the Assad faction has held on by its bootstraps in maintaining power. Uh, it seems to be a large political give and take in Syria. Homes continues to fall back into government hands and into rebel hands. Uh, po- the political state- stability of not only the government in Syria but particularly the Assad regime. How important is it that America and its allies keep a very close eye on some of the political actions that have gone on inside of Damascus?
6: Yeah, certainly, it, it's it's critical to keep an eye on it. But I just I, the reason you know, nobody has acted is because there aren't any good options. You know, the good options uh, were eclipsed uh, you know a year or so ago when you had. Uh, non-radicalized opposition uh, to the Al-Assad regime. Uh, the U.S. You know, held fire for a number of reasons, did not weigh in in those early days, and that, that strategic opportunity is gone forever. So you've had extraordinarily um, Uh, uh, militant uh, factions that have come in, whether they're al-Qaeda or al-Qaeda affiliates or what have you. Uh, Hezbollah has entered the fray, and now they're just the very extremist elements that are all fighting over um, uh, control of their portions of Syria. The fact that that Bashar al-Assad has held on this long uh, in his case, it could be a good news story, could be a not good news story. In that, uh, with all the apparatus of state power, with the conventional military capability, all that stuff that that, that he didn't beat back the opposition early on is uh, extraordinarily, I guess, indicting of the ineptitude of his his government. Uh, But the fact that he was able to hold on with support from Russia and others, the fact that the U.S. and the West held any kind of assistance – uh, out, uh, really gave him the leverage to to, to maintain this hold. Um, but uh, it, it's clear that you know, he's just abrogated any kind of agreement uh, that was put into place. Uh, he's used all kinds of various weapons against the civilian population. You know, Brutality is just uh, unlike anything seen since probably the Hutus and the Tutsis went at each other with the machetes some years ago. So uh, we, we've got to watch it, but there just aren't any good options for weighing in.
2: Alan Moore? Point. So, so hey, Dakota, uh, Alan Moore here.
6: Um,
2: sure. So this week we heard from, uh, the, from, from James Clapper, the director of national intelligence, uh, uh, an assessment that didn't get a lot of attention regarding Syria, basically saying the environment now has become an incubator of radicalism. Yes. And it is beginning to pose... A different kind of threat to America, meaning it becomes as a hotbed or incubator, a place where people can plan how to do harm to us in the region, uh, conceivably here. It's a different kind of a message. Before there was a lot of humanitarian focus, um, and and that upsets uh, many of us. Um, and and no one likes Assad, but but no one dislikes him enough to be uh, as aggressive as we might have been, well, that, that's water under the dam. But if we think that there really is some terrorist organizing and potential planning going on, does that change the equation for America and the West? And what are what are the 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 what kinds of options might we have to start thinking about? if we truly believe that there's some security threats to Americans.
6: Yeah, I I, I think, uh, you know, with reference to to Clapper's uh, uh, point there, I I just don't give that a whole lot of credibility as a near-term threat. And the reason I say that is there are a lot of other parts of the world that are much more quiet if you were wanting to actually sit down and plan and craft to get you know craft some kind of uh, attack against the United States. I mean why you would want to do that in the midst of a horrific war zone uh, is just kind of beyond me um, i the, the various groups that are in Syria have their hands full plotting and attacking each other uh, not so much i i don 't think time to you know, again, sit in a, a bombed-out building and, and plan an attack against New York City or something like that. I, I think the long-term threat that might echo what, what Clapper was saying is that to the extent that, that these fighters uh, gain ever more experience, in, in conducting executing you know, military operations uh, you get these hardened fighters with lots of experience that can be exported uh, later on you know you do have radicalization that goes on you've got foreign fighters coming in from uh, different parts of the map and in fact I think it was either today or yesterday Saudi Arabia uh, issued a proclamation that uh, you know any fighters that leave the kingdom to go uh, fight in Syria are subject to penalties from uh, from Saudi Arabia uh, so that kind of stuff is going on. So it is an incubator. Uh, but I think a direct threat to the United States is a bit farther down the calendar than any kind of immediate threat that might come out of Syria right now. I mean, you could have guys plotting from <clears throat> Afghanistan or Iran or, you know, I guess a number of other places uh, where you don't have uh, al-Assad's bombs dropping on your head. So I, I think it was a bit of a red herring that he threw out there. Uh, there are many other reasons to direct your attention, uh, radicalized elements that may pose a future threat. Yes, we would want to be concerned about that, uh, but I don't think that threat is as uh, severe as just the general destabilization that Syria represents to that region, and the threat that it poses to Turkey and to Jordan and to Lebanon and to Israel. Um, uh, that I think those those issues are much more prominent.
2: Alan Moore yeah so I guess I w- what you're saying is or let me see if this would be a way to characterize it it's a little bit like bringing a bunch of people into a prison
0: mm-hmm.
2: where they get to know each other they can't they, you know they're focused on survival and the business of the day, but they're meeting people, getting ideas and and perhaps some of the relationships that grow out of the prison population might lead to some bad things down the line but for the moment they're as you say they're focused on fighting with each other in the battlefield not a lot of creature comforts but yeah. they're but they're but they're meeting people getting ideas getting experience that it is it is not healthy for american and other living things
6: uh, no, I've, I've... I think that's a great analogy. I, I, it's absolutely perfect. You know, it was the Mujahideen that gained experience fighting the Soviets in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, Al Qaeda, the roots of that, Bin Laden and his guys, you know, were involved in that. Uh, you know, in, in the very er- very earliest uh, uh, iterations, uh, the, the folks that have been involved in operations against Russia and Grozny and, and those kinds of things. So yeah, these are hotbeds of, of relationship building and experience. Uh, but it, but in the moment of these events, they don't pose a direct threat to the United States. Yep. I agree with that. Carl Tuvin.
5: Uh, Lindsey Graham and uh, Senator McCain have talked about yeah. uh, it's time now that maybe we should train some of the troops. We should send advisors over. Um, how do you feel about that?
6: No horrible idea. (laughs) I mean, I understand, you know, with with sympathy why they would want to do that, you know, trying to sort through who the good guys are. uh, But but as they have already reported on on, um, uh, Secretary of State Kerry's uh, discussions is that, you know, the strategy that this administration laid out is failing miserably. Things are out of control in Syria, and uh, it would just, I would be astounded if anybody from outside... Could go into that country and understand the true nature of any of the actors. Um, if you are a moderate or somebody who we could work with, you're probably not extremist enough to survive in the food fight that is Syria. So the idea that we would go in, carefully sort through all the various actors in that country, give them training and weapons, and 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 know for certain that we had picked the right people. And that that training and those weapons wouldn't be transferred to other groups who could turn them on us or anybody else in the region, I just think is folly. I I think that the good senators are are searching and grasping for something that we can do to stem the violence and to somehow ensure that a more moderate faction – uh, rises to power. I mean, I can understand that, and I'm sympathetic to it. I just don't think it's possible given the complexity of this region and our lack of detailed uh, information. Just like we saw in the early days of Iraq, uh, when we think we know who the person is that we want to align with, you know, the same thing has happened in Afghanistan and years ago, and you know, Vietnam, etc. Uh, we always pick the wrong person. Uh, we we uh, deal with it in a very ham-handed fashion, and uh, and, and usually it's a it's a lesson uh, not well learned afterwards that we just didn't understand the complexity of the relationships and the motivations and and the various issues that were driving any one of these groups. So um, I, I would just be very wary of of selecting one out of a hundred groups or think that you have got the right guy and then pour millions of dollars into arming these folks and think that that's going to have to, uh, to bear fruit
0: you know, along,
6: along what we have.
3: Bob Hines. Hi, Dakota. How are
6: you? Uh, doing well, sir. Doing well. Good to talk uh, to you again.
3: Uh, I think your analysis of the situation on the ground today is exactly correct. It's it's uh, it's so it's unfortunate that a couple of years ago we weren't more uh, pressing about how to do things. But what do you think? Uh, what do you think, if anything, we can do? And what do you think uh, is is likely to Syria is likely to be, let's say, in another year or 18 months? I mean, what what do you right. think? What do you perceive is going to be happening? And is there anything? I, I don't think there's anything at all. But maybe there is something that we can do to be influential. But it seems to me that we have to just. Stand
6: back and, and let this thing stew. I I, I I hate. I mean, not that I hate to agree with you. I love agreeing with you. But but I hate the fact that we that we have to agree on this particular point. I think this is a containment operation at a geostrategic level. I think it's reassuring Jordan that we are not conspiring against the king and that we're not. Uh, you know, uh, planning for this flood of Syrian refugees to come down into the kingdom. I think we have to uh, uh, make sure that Turkey clearly understands that that Syrian-Turkish border is a matter of concern to us. Um, I think we need to reassure our longtime ally Israel uh, that we're there with them vis-a-vis, you know, any threat posed by Hezbollah or Iranian influences in Syria. Uh, and I think we just have to keep pretty much uh, um, kind of a containment strategy in place, see what squirts out at the other end of this, and then we know the devil we're working with. So um, Assad, is as bad as he is, it was kind of the devil that you knew, and you could use international pressures and conventional diplomacy to keep things in check but uh, but it 's just a maelstrom inside that country now and and I think we just need to to stand back for a moment uh use mechanisms whether it 's you know the u n or you know i don 't know NATO allies or something like that, to try to pressure for humanitarian relief, but even then. Any kind of humanitarian convoys coming in would need some kind of security. You can't guarantee that the food and the medical supplies and all those things just won't be pirated away by either the rebel factions, you know, 20, 50 of them, uh, or the government forces themselves. And it's just a very sad situation that this administration has allowed to happen uh, because they were unwilling to take action early on, much like a pro-democracy movement that occurred in Iran, um, you know, where there was a, there was an inkling of opportunity, and, and we held back. Uh, and I think history shows that that diplomacy works when it's backed by credible force. Uh, you know, when you've got Libya standing down, you've got um, uh, Syria initially acceding to demands uh, for disarming from uh, WMD because there was a threat of force, uh, you know, anytime we come in with credible military force behind a diplomatic initiative, you see results. When you take that off the table, or you draw a red line and then don't hold to it, uh, then everybody knows you're not serious, you know, you're an amateur walking into the room, and they do whatever they want to anyway. And I think it's just a very unfortunate set of circumstances.
3: Bob Hines, follow-up. Yeah. Uh, you were talking about containment of the problem, uh, you know,
6: the, the refugees
3: in Jordan, the problems at the Turkish border, Israel's problems. How do we, con- how do we contain this, this cesspool of problems that Syria presents us with? How do we do a containment job?
6: Yeah, and again, I think the threat of force is the only thing that's credible. I mean, nobody has has any appetite for putting boots on the ground, and I just think that would be a a horrifically bad decision. Uh, But you could do something where you look at the instruments of power that's state-controlled, meaning air power, you know, they're dropping these big, uh, you know, drum-type bombs on civilian populations and those kinds of things. So, you know, if you felt compelled to do something, you could neutralize or destroy Al Assad's air force, and then it just turns into a knife fight on the ground. Uh, you know, bad for the Syrians, but, but uh, you know maybe it, it mitigates the worst consequences. And, and again, I think that there are things that can be done with local governments surrounding that country. You know, government of Lebanon, Israelis, Jordanians, even the Iraqis. Nobody wants serious problems. come across into their border because of the destabilizing effect that that would have on those areas. So out of a sense of self-interest from these other countries, you could have some quiet diplomacy going on behind the scenes uh, that strengthens the borders and tries to keep this poison inside of Syria. And then again, like I said, three months, six months, a year from now, you see who the last man standing is. And now they've got, you know, a state that they have to contend with, and and there are more conventional uh, mechanisms that are probably in place that you could use. Dakota,
1: uh, several news sources have come out and said that there's been traffic amongst the al-Qaeda hierarchy, Mm -hmm. basically pulling its support for rebels in and around Syria. Yeah, one
6: group in particular. It's ISIS, right? Mm -hmm.
1: Right. Is, is, Is that a telltale sign that maybe staying out of this was a smart move that they'll implode on themselves, or is that wishing too much?
6: Well, yeah, I think it's, it's something that has happened, but you couldn't have envisioned that happening six months or nine months ago. You know, the fact that the administration was, so, was possessed of such foresight that if we stay out, uh, the extremists will become too extreme and start feeding on each other. I mean, there's no way you could have predicted that. But what has happened is ISIS has gotten so extreme uh, with their ideology and their willingness to take on uh, other Sunni factions, um, other you know groups that are around them, that even Al Qaeda, uh, the base, you know, the core element, has said, "We don't want to have anything to do with you. You know, if you're not going to play you- by our playbook, then we're going to cut you off, and you're no longer part of the organization." So, so
1: what you're telling me is that there's a rebel faction in Syria that is too militant
0: and too <laughs> Islamic even for Al Qaeda.
6: <laughs> That's oh. true. I mean, you know, you know, as extreme as they are, they are still trying to run an organization, and they do want to spread their ideology and get people on their bandwagon and those kinds of things. So, you know, even Honor Among Thieves or, you know, you know some kind of rule book uh, that they've got going, you know, however antithetical it is to our way of life, uh, ISIS has gotten uh, even, even more extreme than they're willing to tolerate and, wow, and that, we'll just have to see what uh, they do. But there that, are folks out there willing to support that because they have independent funding streams and they do have fighters talking to their cause. So, like I said, uh, any chance that a moderate group might have, I think, is, is past. And, and I think this is a fight among extremists.
5: Carl Tubman. Justin took half of my uh, uh, question away. Uh, Hezbollah. Uh, both al-Qaeda and Hezbollah have lost a lot of people in this battle. Is there any chance that Hezbollah will all of a sudden decide, we got to go home, we have other fish to fry? I don't think,
6: I don't so. think as so, so. As long as Iranian, Iranian uh, influences influence stay involved, stay involved then, then, Hezbollah then, Hezbollah then Hezbollah will stay aligned with Iran and they, see, and they this see this as a this larger, as a larger you know, Shia, Shia versus Sunni uh, type of, of uh, fight. So uh, to the extent that uh, Hezbollah can show that they are valiant fighters, that they're effective on the battlefield, that actually helps for cause back home in Lebanon. Denise Krapp.
4: Dakota, this is Denise. Uh, you, you mentioned a few minutes ago about our NATO allies. What would be the political pressures uh, that would occur that would make um, some of our allies want to go in and and I'm thinking right now about Britain and France.
6: Yeah, I, I don't think anybody wants to go in, um, uh, but I think, you know, it's uh you know, it's kinda like you can you can make promises on completely different issues if they'll, you know, stand with you at least rhetorically or diplomatically on this kind of front. Um, so, you know, there are trade relationships that the Europeans get involved in that we don't necessarily get involved in. You know, the Germans have done deals with Iran for, for a long time. So I think that, that there, are, there are issues of common interest. You know, do you want these extremists coming into Germany or to France or to England or to Italy? Um, and so if it's in everybody's interest to keep this problem contained, then there are things that that NATO or European allies can do in terms of approaching Turkey or approaching other actors in the region that might not necessarily be, be politically viable for us. I mean, somebody in our Department of State having an agreement, you know, with um, um, an element uh, in Syria would be problematic, but, uh, but perhaps somebody in Europe can have a discussion, you know, on our behalf. So I think there are areas of common interest. Uh, primarily in security uh, realms. I mean, even the Russians, uh, you know, have their own problems with the with, uh, Islamist extremists. And, um, you know, they, they want to keep these problems out of their area, and, and even they might be uh, convinced to, to wade in on the issue and contain the worst of this stuff.
2: Congressman al Swift, I, I think there's no <clears throat> reason that we should not be involved in this and whether we're doing the right thing, did the right thing. That's a matter of debate. But it seems to me if we back away a little bit, we've got a a, a fundamental, I don't know whether it's a philosophic, political,
0: uh,
2: or or a military. I I don't know what kind Mm -hmm. of an issue this is. But in all of my adult life, one of the things that always crops up is we can't be a policeman to the world. Now, I thought... We really needed to go into Rwanda and put a stop to that, uh, that, that horrible situation that was there. Mm-hmm. That was Rwanda a direct threat to us in any way. We we did it in Croatia, well, the whole, that old Yugoslavia.
1: Serbian-Yugoslavia breakup.
2: Yeah, We we, we, we and we made some judgments to stay out of some things, and we were criticized because of the incredible death toll that that occurred. On the other hand, we have a lot of wars we're involved in right now, and the whole question of are, are we really inevitably the policemen of the world, whether we want to be or not, or do you sometimes let situations like Rwanda just work themselves out without getting involved? It's a, it's a horrible moral question as well as a military, diplomatic, political.
6: I agree with you. I, I think I think the um, the principles that our country holds dear are consistent across all of these situations, but each situation is unique in its particular context. Uh, and by that I mean uh, people cutting each other up with machetes is a little bit different than using an attack aircraft, dropping bombs, or using you know poison gas uh, on a civilian population. So there are some things you can do in, in one circumstance at a given level of effort. It wouldn't have taken much in terms of, uh, risk to the force, military capability, et cetera, uh, to deal with something like Rwanda, as opposed to trying to denuclearize North Korea. I mean, you, know, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So bad things are occurring, but what you can do in a specific circumstance has to do with who is involved, what weaponry is employed. Uh, what U.S. interests are at risk? You know, is it a threat to the homeland? Is it destabilization of a regional ally? Is it a threat to a, you know a critical natural resource or something like that? And so, and you know, what is this? What is the network of alliances or interests that are in the region? You know, something would be different in Southeast Asia than it would be in the Middle East or Latin America. So each one of these things has to be treated, uh, recognizing the context. Uh, That surrounds it. And then you see what's the political will, what are the national interests, uh, where and how strongly do our particular ideals, you know, safety for people, freedom, democracy, you know, personal expression, all those kinds of things. um, You know, what can you do to promote those or protect those uh, to protect the innocents? Uh, vis-a-vis the threats that exist in that particular area. So uh, I agree with everything you're saying, you know, Rwanda and Serbia and all these other things, but each one of those was, was unique um, coming together of factors, and, uh, and you have to address each one independently.
1: Dakota, real quickly, you know, we've talked about the political and the military side. You know, we keep seeing and hearing the humanitarian crisis that's going on. Mm-hmm. When we talk about the humanitarian issue right now, does does the U.S. and our allies view the humanitarian issue as a a threat to national security? Is this, in fact, a clear and present danger?
6: Um, I would say that mostly it is not a national security. Uh, threat to us. I mean, in the long term, if you have a um, uh, an unstable population that uh, continues um, to to prove to be a burden in a local area, let's say you know if it's in Turkey or if it's in Jordan or someplace else, uh, over time that can metastasize and become a real issue. Right? Uh, Palestinians have been an issue for you know some of the Arab countries for, for a long time. Um so that over time can be can be a, a security concern, and the uh, the local political problems that that can generate over time. But I think in the immediate moment, it really is more of a humanitarian concern. These people are starving to death, uh, the government or radicalized elements are preventing the flood, uh, the uh, flow of uh, food and medical supplies you have um, uh, just troves hundreds and thousands. Of civilians uh, that have been injured you know due to the conflict and they've got no relief anywhere Uh, now if you're in Turkey or if you're in Iraq or Jordan or some other place you're not really wanting Tens of thousands of people to come across your border and set up these big camps because you have no idea when those camps would finally be disestablished, and people would go back home so folks are really reluctant you know to um, to create any kind of an enclave if you were going to push these things inside the Syrian border then who's going to put the forces on the ground to make a protected zone? And, again, what does victory look like? You know, when can you disestablish that? When can the U.N. troops go home? When can you, you know, shut off the supply of aid?
0: Right. So
6: uh, there are no easy answers, and it's just a horrific mess, and it's one of the tolls of war.
1: Hey, Dakota, a national security question just came over our Twitter account for you. Uh, this is a question from Brent up in New York. Uh, his question is, uh, a group of more than 100 retired generals has deemed 20%, 27% of Americans here on American soil, uh, aged 17 to 24, too fat to fight. Is technology removing the need for chin-ups and seven-minute miles, and is American health a threat to military eligibility and
6: effectiveness? Uh, good question. Complicated uh, answer. Uh, how big are the U.S. military forces? You know, how big do they need to be relative to the size of the population? So you know, we're That's over like 300. You're
1: talking to remember who you're talking to, D.
0: Yeah.
6: <laughs> well, I mean, you got over 300 million Americans. You know, if you look at the size of the population that would be yeah. eligible for enlistment, and then you look at the size of the American military, um, you don't need that big of a percentage. Uh, that are healthy. Now, I would prefer that everybody is healthy and everybody is willing to serve. And there has been discussion about some kind of mandatory service among all youth so that you got some skin in the game. But warfare has changed over time. The complexity of it, uh, the training uh, aspect, and so a conscript or a a short term, you know, kind of volunteer force that's just there for a couple of years really doesn't translate well into um and to military capabilities. Now, to the extent we continue to be a a technologically advanced force, you have more semi-autonomous or remotely controlled kinds of capabilities, then the percentage of the force that has to be on the ground, you know, toting a load and lifting big bullets and those kinds of things, uh, is likely to decrease in size. So the military services are all Uh, reviewing what are the physical standards necessary for somebody to be effective you know, in in military skills. I mean, if you're a missileer, it's a little bit different than being a special forces guy, you know, out there in, in the bush someplace. And, uh, you know, if the answer was easy or they would have had an answer, you know, a year ago, uh, but as we've seen with pull-up requirements in the Marine Corps and whether or not Special Operations Command is introducing, uh, you know, women into its operating forces or not, uh, they're struggling with determining what those physical requirements are in a modern high-tech military capability. Because again, we were talking about context. Sometimes you can push a button, uh, or use a remotely piloted vehicle, you know, strike from long distance, and it doesn't take a whole lot of physical oomph to do that. In other times, cases, you actually have to get on the ground very arduous, very physically intense, uh, you need a lot of endurance and stamina, and you just don't know before the fact what requirement is, what the requirement is going to be. So the services are fairly conservative approaching that and saying if I don't really know now, then I need to hedge my bet and have as physically capable a force as possible. Uh, otherwise, I cut off that option and I have less options to hand to the commander in chief if we do have to go to war.
1: Dakota, last question here before we let you go. I sure. uh, want your take on uh, on several of the comments that have come out recently regarding the Obama administration's foreign policy and the debacle that is its foreign relations plans. Uh, you, you, we saw General Gates' book. We saw some of the criticisms in there. We saw the State of the Union. Did Did the, did the president get across a clear foreign relations plan moving forward in his administration and do you feel that in fact that the administration has such a dysfunctional foreign policy agenda that it's detrimental to our standing in the world community
6: yeah i do i i think they're blinded by a particular ideology um which which leads one to believe that all problems can be worked out via rhetoric that reasonable people can sit around a table hash through whatever the, you know, the, the differences of opinion are and, and, uh, and achieve some kind of a mutually agreeable position where not everybody gets everything they want, but everybody gets something that satisfies whatever their need is. And I think what they're missing is, is the rest of the world doesn't work that way. Um, you know, the United States and our European allies and some of the other more sophisticated countries uh, are, have advanced over many, many decades or hundreds of years to develop a certain system that works within the Westphalian state. I mean, you know, states interacting with states. But many other parts of the world are still fairly brutal. Um, you know, uh, strength reigns where we pull back uh, physically. Other powerful influences are going to fill in that vacuum. Uh, the world is a dynamic place, and, uh, and it just doesn't work uh, well across the negotiating table. So I think uh, this administration's idea that they can just talk through problems does not yeah. mesh well with the way the rest of the world works. And I think it's been injurious to the long-term interests of the United States and uh, whatever administration comes next is going to have to, to just uh, scrap and claw, you know, the United States back into a position where we're a dominant or the dominant influence on the global stage.
1: Hey, uh, Dakota, we really appreciate all your insight. Of course, you got an open, uh, open invite to join us anytime. We're going to be calling on you from time to time now that you're back here in D.C. Uh, again, Lieutenant Colonel Dakota Wood, U.S. Marine Corps, retired, a senior fellow, the Heritage Uh, Heritage Foundation. Dakota, thanks for joining us. Enjoyed it. Thanks. We'll see you soon. Hey, uh, folks, when we come back, we'll have a little bit of a free-for-all. Everybody can talk about whatever we want, but basically I'm going to set the agenda because I can do that. I'm your moderator, Justin Russell. Please, you can call us, 877-662-3713, or you can tweet your questions, as we just had, at backroompolitics.com. This is backroompolitics. This is Good lord! This is backroom politics live from Shelley's Backroom, thirteen thirty one F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington D. C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know you hear us talk about Shelley's Backroom, thirteen thirty one F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington D. C. It's being the place to be, America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelly's can make combinations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelly's Backroom, go to www.shellysbackroom.com slash private-party. Shelly's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also a place for private parties. Politics Live on Blood Talk Radio from Shelly's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., our final half-hour segment. And, by the way, if you want to comment on anything we've talked about today, you can call us, 877-662-3713, or you can tweet your questions at Backroom Politics. Hey, uh, okay, uh, Dakota, we, I mean, we're always gracious to have Dakota Wood here on on the show. Great, great thought process and foreign policy from him, but we have comments. Al, you had a comment
2: you wanted to bring up about Dakotas. No, no, I didn't. Uh, and it's typical. You weren't listening to me. <laughs> I, what I said was, I thought my comment about uh, about being policeman of the world and what have you would have been more relevant at the end of the last discussion before we went to Dakota, because it took us off of, of his main thought. Uh, but uh, I thought Dakota was excellent. I, I think he's a great addition to the program. Call Tubman. Uh, my only comment
5: is is that I think that two years ago when this whole thing was was, was boiling and and started that we were trying to get out of iraq we were trying to get out of afghanistan and if all of a sudden the president turned around and said we have to go into syria if we have just been an uproar from the american people that they were they are tired of war and secondly uh, i think in spite of what he says about negotiating, I think if we can get people around the negotiating table, sometimes sometimes it works. Other times it doesn't. In this situation, we tried, to fail. And maybe later on, it'll, it'll be put together. Congressman, for now. I thought there was an interesting
2: parallel between what he was saying there and what has been going on between the White House and Capitol Hill. Uh, in terms of learning, you need to negotiate, you need to give a little to get a little, and so forth, and so on. I think we, we've got that battle going on right here in washington d c Alan War? Yeah, two years ago, there were opportunities not to send troops in. That was never an option. No one was talking about that. but there were the point is there were options that to, to support the then more moderate um, uh, rebel groups. It's never easy. It's never risk-free. We didn't do then what we might have done and I think wish we had done, but that's then, this is now, what do we do now? And as Dakota points out, there aren't
0: a lot of real good
2: options. Even on the humanitarian side, when we try to get aid into Syria, where there are millions who are displaced and need help, there's no security so that the international humanitarian workers are at huge physical risk, and their organizations won't let them go in but but, but Alan I, I mean
1: we heard Dakotas you don't agree with Dakota saying that the humanitarian crisis is a uh, is not a clear and present danger to our national
2: security well no I didn't say that I, all I said was what he said, and I completely agree is when you, when you've got a you've got hundreds of thousands of people in one location in Turkey or in Jordan, you have the potential for domestic disruption in those countries. America cares about the, the leadership but those are of key Jordan. countries those are key countries America in our cares not turkey that's right but the but but the biggest risk is is to them domestically the 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 the, the, dis, the the potential risk to America is indirect. It's real, but it's out there that and and so. We are doing enormous amounts in those countries to provide humanitarian aid and some sort of stability and some sort of management of these populations. We're doing all we can. We're doing very little inside Syria, which is what is so horribly frustrating, because during winter, when there's no food, no shelter, no fuel, no security, we know people are dying and suffering injury and assault um, and 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 permanent damage is being done. We wring our hands. I don't have an answer, and I, you know, I. But I, can, I think that's a problem, though. We we nobody really does have an answer. Well, it's such a, complex, of it's a Of course it's a problem. But we can talk about it, and we can. And we can at least make sure that, that there's assistance around the borders. And even there, the, the requests that the U.N. has made are falling woefully short in countries simply not stepping up to provide the literally billions that are needed. Bob Heinz. You
3: know, I think the code head was probably about uh, as correct as I could figure out, uh, and be able to build on what Alan just said, it, you know, it seems to me that the, the thing that we have to do is sort of try to contain all the fighting without trying to get anybody, you know, let all the different groups in the, in the country keep fighting, try to protect the borders of neighboring countries where thousands and tens of thousands of people are living in tents in Jordan and uh, Lebanon and Turkey. And, we've, and uh, we've got to protect, we've gotta, we've gotta protect those countries who are our ally countries, and, and let the fire burn in uh, in uh, uh, in Syria. And I wouldn't mind it if we uh, could if we could find and identify at times groups of people who are the kinds of people who are jihadists who are in the worst worst kinds of folks around. And if we could send a bunch of you know, drones over and blow the hell out of them, that would be a good idea. Yeah, you see,
1: we, we get caught in a Catch-22 situation if we do that. I mean, what scares the living bejesus out of me is the fact that we now have fat Islamic militant factions that are too conservative for al-Qaeda. That bothers me, so we're in a catch-22. Either we allow them to continue to incubate in Syria in the current situation, both political and humanitarian, or we're going to get caught up in an international firestorm by using drones and providing arms and creating what some of our non-allies would deem as instability in the region. Well,
3: instability in the region, my God, yes, it's instability. That's all it is. And it seems to me that the best thing we can do is try to, in effect, wall it all off, keep Syria within Syria, and let everybody fight it out and kill each other until the point that they realize there's only six of this group and 12 of those groups, and everybody, they, they ought to just sit down, the last few people left alive, and work a deal out. Congressman Al? I uh, was an
1: optimistic. I was gonna. I didn't want to say anything. I'll let you handle that one,
2: Alan. Hold on. I wonder, and and this this ought to this ought to make you all mad at me. Had we not taken out Saddam Hussein, spent our time trying to resolve the problems we had in Afghanistan. Saddam Hussein was not well liked in the region by his other people. What role would he have played in this? It's not necessarily one that would not have been to our benefit. It wouldn't have been for us, but it would have given us a different kind of leverage and a different kind of uh, mix. Uh, I have believed all along that by going into to to going after Saddam Hussein used up a lot of our money, a lot of our troops, a lot of our capacity to deal with the situations we're dealing with now. And he was a bad guy, but he was but he was also seen as a bad guy by all of his neighbors. And he would have been. Uh, he would have played a role in Syria. He would have played a role against Iran. He would have played a role. And what that role would be, I have no idea. but I suspect it would have stirred this pot in a very different way, and maybe maybe oh, in a way that would have made it easier for us and our allies to deal
4: with. Denise well, crap. If, if you go down, if you start talking about Saddam Hussein, then you go down the progression of, well, are the Russians regretting invading Afghanistan in 1979? Do the British regret going into this area 100 years ago? Mm -hmm. And it's a horrible progression to think about because a lot of people have failed in this area. I, I think what we should be focusing on is maybe talking to the Russians who were there in '79, maybe pulling a couple of those British historians who've been, you know, Looking at all the paperwork that happened a hundred years ago and saying, "What should we have learned? And what are some of the steps that we should be taking? Because we do not want to be miring ourselves in another morass of problems." And that's what we're having. But I think, to. but I
2: think we're, I think we're comparing we're in a morass.
1: Well, no, but uh, but also, I, I I think we're making a stretch. These, at least in my opinion, of comparing Afghanistan, which has never been politically stable for its entire existence as an independent nation versus syria which was at one time a large productive member of the middle eastern community because and it was
4: ruled by terror <laughs> and if we want to go there then let's start talking about algeria and lebanon i mean well, i mean syria for that we, we, could, go in, we could go government. into the african horn for that matter yes. and then look at that but this matters because of oil and if we're talking about oil then we better start looking at some lessons learned because you know we cannot afford to keep putting our military in this place. We put them into five, six, seven deployments. These men and women are tired. We cannot seriously have a conversation when we're about to put them into Syria. Carl Toobin and then Alan Moore.
5: One of, the, one of the big problems that we have is the, is the division amongst the, uh, the Arab people, Shiite versus Shia, all this. Um, it happened in the First World War when when uh, they decided to to uh, put uh, Yugoslavia together. And people in the administration, people in the State Department went to President Wilson and said, you can't do this because these people aren't going to exist together. And he said, well, it's kind of not my problem. And, of course, 50 years later, it blew up.
2: Alan Moore, you know, I think that. That the answer to Al's question, what would have happened with, if we had not gone after Saddam? Answer: We don't know.
0: Yeah, um, I,
2: a lot of people have wrestled with that. We'll continue to wrestle with that. I mean, Denise asks these questions about other lessons. Very smart people are trying to figure this stuff out, and we we continue to muddle through. But she mentioned oil, and she she talks about that 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 overlarge role that oil has played in that region for a long time which suggests to me that Denise is making a really interesting, if not compelling case, to let's go ahead and approve the Keystone XL pipeline. Oh, here we go. <laughs> so wait, a minute, we wait, a wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. Stop, stop, let me, let me jump in. On, oh, no. on, let me, um, oh, no. let hey, me jump imports.
1: in. Wait a minute. First first of all, let, let's be clear about one thing. I'm going to throw, and this is going to shock everybody who listens to the show on a regular basis, I'm going to throw out
2: facts.
0: For the past, <laughs> I'm
1: a, I know. Everybody, calm down.
2: Uh oh. I know. The reality is, on our your toes. The reality is,
1: our biggest sources of oil do not come from the Middle East anymore and have not. Our biggest, our biggest import of oil comes from Canada. Next, we have surpassed ourselves. We are producing more oil than we ever have in our history. On top of that, we still get it from other sources outside. Middle East, I I mean, taking Venezuela out, Mexico is our third largest. Then Venezuela, we're talking about a Middle Eastern oil
2: source that is now fifth, on our import list.
1: But
4: that's
0: us. That's not the rest that's of the world. That's not the world.
2: That's not all of Europe and the world that we care about as part of our alliances. So, yeah, we're not dependent. We get more from Nigeria than from uh, right. from the Middle East. But we care enormously about where the world gets its oil and the Middle East is But important. largely... Having said that, we also care a lot about where we in America get our oil, which brings us back to Keystone, yes. and the new stone, yes. the new report. Good Lord. That, okay, wait, 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 wait,
3: wait, guess on. what, guess States what? The Department One more time. report is wonderful because it says there's no reason not to build it
1: right now. Okay, you know what? Guess what? I am taking moderator privilege. This is my favorite part of the show, at least it was until right now.
0: <laughs> this is
1: Tell Me a Story, where we talk about all the innuendo buzz of current day stuff, where we can get, sometimes we even scoop some of the media outlets. I'm going to start with Alan Moore. Obviously, I think I know what your story is. Alan, tell me a story. We don't know. Oh, well, so. Christ almighty.
0: Are you serious? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, good Lord. Do you want to go any other way, then? I don't care. Uh,
1: no, I don't no, 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 no,
2: so. no, 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 no. No, we've talked around this table about Obamacare many times, and we were going to continue to talk about it. The jury is out on Obamacare, but, the, but it's not looking real good for how things are unfolding. Today, and I think we'll be hearing a lot more about this in the news, the, the Congressional Budget Office, the group that has an enormous amount of respect in the world for being objective in its analysis, has redone the numbers on the potential employment effects of Obamacare and came out with a rather shocking finding that they always knew there were going to be people who would work less after Obamacare because they wouldn't have to keep working to keep their health benefits. That's not a bad thing that people would have freedom to leave, to move to a different job or just to retire earlier. Cause now they knew they have an assured uh, uh, source Medicals. of insurance. Now, there's there's also a lot of you know a lot of evidence out there, anecdotal mostly, of companies cutting back hours on people who who don't get insurance. What the CBO says is we're going to lose the equivalent of two and a half million workers by 2017. That's big news, folks, and that's not what this White House wants. Don't listen to their rosy painting. Um, uh of, of what those facts mean great story carl tuben is it this
5: decade yes good tell me a story joan mondale passed away in the last 24 48 hours and uh, as second lady she really um uh of the arts um she she
2: you're saying something nice so say it louder
5: <laughs> she she was always interested in the arts and artists and wherever she went. She was a loving husband, a loving husband, with uh, really. to the vice president. They had a very, very close relationship. Uh, she got into politics when, when she, she, she was going to war committee Kennedy and got into politics. And he started running for office because she was going to set home alone. She raised three. Very nice children. One, Unfortunately, Eleanor died. Uh, but she was a great second lady of the United States, so uh, it should be remembered in that way.
1: Okay. Uh, Denise Krepp, does this have to do with maritime? No. All right, tell me a story.
4: No. <laughs> this has to do with Common Core. I, I spent two hours on Sunday talking with fellow parents at my daughter's school about Common Core because Common Core is the reason that we're being given that we cannot celebrate. Oh, let's say, Veterans Day, Thanksgiving, Martin Luther King, Memorial Day, and Labor Day. And so we as parents went and said, what are you talking about? Well, so because it's not in Common Core, the teachers don't have to teach it. So we have done our own little revolt in Washington, D.C., and said, no, 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 no. Just because it's not in there doesn't mean we're not going to do it. So what we're doing right now is actually I went in to talk about Veterans Day. Other people went in to talk about Thanksgiving. I think it's going to be an issue that people are going to talk about, because even though things aren't there, doesn't mean that we shouldn't be talking about it, because we as Americans hold certain things dear, and certain things dear include Thanksgiving, include Veterans Day, Memorial Day, and other holidays, because we as Americans celebrate these, and not only these celebrations, but they're important to everybody.
3: Very good. Bob Hines, tell me a story. The State Department has issued a report that says, in effect, there's no reason not to build the pipeline. This needs to be done. It ought to be done. The president ought to do it right away. I don't think he will. But we—I've been saying for over a year he's going to do it at some point. He sure as hell better. His old administration is telling him he ought to do it.
2: Very good.
1: I agree, Congressman Al. Well,
2: he, Bob was sitting next to me, and we saw so Adam, and he scared me. I. I, <laughs> I uh, I, I, too, have always believed the president will do it. Uh, he, he wouldn't do it during the campaign for obvious reasons, uh, but he never quite said no, and uh, I think, uh, I think that, that that will probably happen. Wow. Uh,
1: MSNBC has gone on a kick of covering uh, Bridgegate as if this was an international terrorist bombing. Uh, It has been the lead story on every segment outside of Morning Joe and the Daily Rundown, which I have a lot of respect for those two shows. After that, Chris Christie and Bridgegate has been the lead story. Now that CNN has led with other pressing news. We've seen Fox News lead with other pressing news. Even RT and Al Jazeera America and BBC America have led with other pressing news. It is a sign that MSNBC is desperate to try and get their numbers up so much that they've got to go out and do tabloid journalism wholeheartedly. It is a disparate. Okay, okay, everybody's raising their hand
2: because everybody knows that I'm a shill for Christie. but okay, go ahead, Alan. Well, I'm not here to defend MSNBC. I think they're laughable oftentimes, but i got to say this. The thing that most – surprised and troubled me in the last couple of days was the statement that the Christie operation put out trashing this guy, Wildstein, Christie's guy at the Port Authority, for sins from high school. I thought, what in the world? That's the most pathetic attack I've ever heard, and it demeans Christie's operation still again and makes me wonder... Still, again, whether these guys are ready for primetime.
0: Congressman Al, you
2: want to jump in on this? I certainly don't want to disagree with Alan on that one. <laughs> I, I, I am interested in what reaction you all had to uh, who is that crazy right-wing guy on Fox? O'Reilly. O'Reilly. Bill O'Reilly. O'Reilly. His interview of the president in the middle of the Super Bowl, I thought was, I have never seen in such a primetime thing, such a hostile interview of a president of the United States. I thought he, I thought the president handled it well. Uh, I don't think any great damage was done. But who does this guy think he is, Walter Cronkite, for crying out loud?
1: Oh, come on. He's he's not Sean Hannity. At least you know Bill O'Reilly's got some common sense. There are. There Why are did all? the
2: president agree to it? That's my. <laughs> <laughs> that's the
1: other question. I, I think that's an excellent question, and I'd love
2: to know the answer. And
1: by the way, the Super Bowl was the highest-rated TV event in history. This past Super Bowl was. And
2: Seattle won. <laughs> It cannot have been the highest in history. It is. Not, maybe in America. It is the highest. But it's highest not as big as Olympics, World
1: Cup. Okay, let me re- Could oh, <laughs> be, make Could be, Ward. You overstated. You know, oh, how unusual. You know, oh, stop, Congressman. This statement. Thank Alan, God
3: Alan's here. Alan, yeah. Made, yeah. Alan made a good point. Why would the president, make you know, go agree to do that? this? I think it shows his quality of judgment. He's had judgment on major policies and and small things like this, and he's almost wrong all the time. Wow, good point.
1: On that note, good Lord. On that note, on behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Denise Krepp, Carl Tuvin, and Alan Moore, we want to thank Dakota Wood again for joining us for today's show. Great interview, as always. I am your moderator, Justin Russell. Special thanks to our producer, Brent Sullivan, up there at Syracuse. We need you down here, Bubba. Get on down. We will be back next Tuesday for the best political radio show you've never heard of. And by the way, you can still follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And you can always go to our website, www.backroompolitics.org, to catch up on all the shows that you might have missed. And as always, next Tuesday we'll be here live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., Bob Hines.
3: And if you're not listening to us, you're missing it, baby. <laughs>
1: whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa dude. This, this is the place to be. Damn straight it is. We'll see you next week. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye.